Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Um, this is Joe Salustio. This is Elizabeth Liba. And on the line, we have Dr. Dan Mahoney, President, System President of Southern Illinois University. Dan, how are you today? How things going? Very good. Thank you. Uh, great. Well, thank you for being with us. And before we jump into the episode, particularly times we're living in right now, how are you? How's your health? How's your family? How's your, your inner circle of, of friends and acquaintances? Uh, how's everybody doing out there? Yeah, mostly pretty good. And, and uh, we've been very fortunate. It hasn't uh, affected anybody, certainly my family or close to us. Uh, our biggest challenge is I took this job in March, and uh, my family is primarily back still in South Carolina where it was before. So we've been at a distance, and it's been a little bit harder to get back and forth than it was before this. But uh, but from a health standpoint, we've been good. Yeah, it, uh, it is an interesting time, let's just say that, to, to say the least. Well, you um, <laughs> that, that, that brings up my first question, and I'm glad you were leading me into it as if we had planned this beforehand, uh, but we didn't. So um, you, you started in March. And, yes. Uh, in, a t- in, in a time that um, many would have uh, turned tail and run away from a challenge uh, like that, particularly because I think March was really the first month where we saw uh, mass panic about COVID and it really, you know, bled into April a little bit. But March was kind of the month where everything was confirmed. You know, what the heck are you doing, Dan, taking a job in, in, uh, in March um, amidst all of this craziness? How, how did you rationalize through that process and, and uh, you know, take that step? It was interesting because we had talked about a number of different start dates uh, for me, and we kind of landed the board and I on March 1st, not knowing any of this obviously would, would be coming. Um, and as I've said several times, the first email I sent on my first day was to the chancellors of the campuses, basically, where are we pre- on preparing for the COVID crisis? And what, you know, or we didn't even know it would be a crisis at that point, but what are we doing in preparation? And, um, you know, really that first week I was here, I think people were still fairly optimistic that it wasn't going to affect us. Our students went home for spring break. But within a week, you know, we were basically going entirely online. So it happened very, very fast. Yeah, you got that right. So, so that's an uh, important point too. So, um, I talk about the the breadth and the scope of um, the SIU system and what that encompasses uh, encompasses, so that our listeners can get an idea of, of you know your oversight responsibility at this point. Sure. Yeah. There's, so there's two primary campuses, one in Carbondale and one in Edwardsville. But there's also uh, three other locations. Our medical school, while it's officially part of the Carbondale campus, it's actually in Springfield, uh, which is about three hours from Carbondale. And then and Edwardsville has a dental school in Alton and a, um, a center in East St. Louis, a little bit closer to them than that. Um, so really, we're in five different places. There's probably about, you know, overall 25 to 30,000 students, about 7,000 employees. So was your first order of business when you uh, walked in on day one to, to transition 
um, things to remote learning, to, to transition to staff and faculty, to work from home. Now, take us through that first 30 days um, of, of your experience there at SIU. Yeah, so again, like I said, early on that first week, I was actually at the Missouri Valley Conference basketball tournament in an arena packed with people. Um, and that was that Friday and Saturday. And so at that point, we were, again, still thinking uh, nothing was going to change for the spring semester. Our students had just left from both campuses for spring break. And I would say it was probably by Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week that the thought that we might have to go entirely online um, started to rise up. And and by Thursday, we were making that announcement. So really, it was within about a 24 to 48 hour period. And then we had the challenge of all of our students left for spring break, but they had not brought any of their materials with them. So all of their books, right. everything was here. And so had to figure out, you know, two things. One, whether to keep the residence halls open at all, which we did. We had about 700 students between the two campuses who stayed in the residence halls um, even after we went to remote learning. But we also then had to allow people to come back and get books and get their materials, even if they weren't completely moving out at that point. Um, and most of them, that's what they did. They came back, got materials left, and then came back and did a more complete move out um, in May. Uh, but again, was trying to manage through all of that and really get the faculty, you know, we're announcing, you know, on Thursday that, you know, Monday we're going to remote learning and obviously uh, giving the faculty a little bit of time to prepare for that. Again, that had to be an extraordinary challenge for them. And, and I will say overall, it was amazing to watch them step up and come up with all kinds of creative ways to help the students continue to learn even in an entirely different situation. Yeah, and you know, Liz, uh, Liz is going to take over here and she, she's a, a faculty member and, and you know, one of the questions and, and discussions we've had with uh, any university administrator that comes on is, is the speed and acceptance at which people have been able to pivot to online learning. And, and uh, Liz, do you want to um, take it from there and, and dive into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And I definitely want to hear some more about that and dive a little bit deeper into that because we've had a wide variety of experiences and some schools have had contingency plans in place and other schools have had already robust programs, online programs in place and other schools have had to be a little bit more creative in terms of developing a contingency plan with everything that was so unexpected with uh, COVID, it hasn't been easy for some schools to pivot as quickly. Take us through the process in terms of what you had in place and how you were able to maintain that consistency. And then looking into the fall, how do you anticipate that you will be able to continue to serve the students? And, and can you maybe inform for those that may be still kind of in the decision-making um, process, how are you assessing the situation and determining how best to meet the needs of your students? Yeah, so I, I would say first, you know, the, the pivot to it, we did have uh, certainly some classes online already and, and um, certainly had a decent number of people with experience teaching online, but we really were now pushing a lot of people who hadn't had that experience and frankly, probably uh, some of them reluctant to ever teach online. So this was not, this is something maybe they didn't want to do. And like I said, one of the things that I was probably most impressed with was how creative they were in finding ways to do that. And even, 
you know, giving examples of, you know, the art program, well, what do you do? Um, they actually packaged up uh, materials and sent them to students so they could complete their art projects um, so that they mm-hmm. could do some remote learning in, a, in an area where that's not as easy to do, maybe as it might be in a history class or an English class. Um, our own automotive technology program and aviation programs, they came up with some ways of doing it. But then there's also, and they're good examples of, there's limitations. I, I frankly can't teach a person to fly online. Um, so we have a really strong aviation flight program that's not going to work in an, in an online setting in quite the same way. And so we had to find ways to keep the students moving forward on their learning. Um, but I would say as we look towards the fall, one of my big concerns, you know, when you, people have talked about going, well, we'll just go entirely online for this year, that, that's not going to work for some of those programs. Um, at some point, they need to – we have an automotive technology program. Um, they're going to have to, you know, get working on cars again <laughs> under supervision. And, and uh, the aviation program, they're going to have to get flying time again. And so some of those are a little bit harder to deal with than others. But, again, overall, the faculty, you know, for those few weeks, really, which you're talking about half a, basically half a semester, about seven weeks, uh, we're pretty creative on it. I think there's some concerns about that um, kind of for the long term. So as we look towards the fall, I think one of the ways we've put it, is we've always had some classes face-to-face, some hybrid, um, and some online, and that will be our fall as well. The difference will be that percentage that are face-to-face will be less, and the percentage that are hybrid or online will be more. So in some ways, it's not the typical semester as far as the breakdown, but it's typical in that we will have classes offered in all three ways. And trying to focus the face-to-face on, again, those you know, a couple of things, those programs where it's most important that we have the face-to-face uh, opportunity because, again, aviation, automotive, lab classes, things like that, um, you really can't do in a remote way as, as effectively. Uh, focusing on some of the face-to-face classes being for the freshmen who maybe need that experience as part of their transition. So, again, trying to put a priority on the face-to-face opportunities to where we think they're most needed. Um, and also, taking advantage of every space we have available. So we're very committed to the wearing masks, social distancing, doing all of those types of things, which means a classroom that maybe had a few hundred students may have 30 or 40 or 50 now. And so we'll use those spaces in a different way. So there's a lot of things we're trying to do as we're preparing for that. Um, But we've also been reaching out to faculty. In fact, I'm teaching in the fall, so I'm part of all of this as well. And, uh, you know, so I got my note the other day of here's how we see your class, and and mine will be hybrid, um, although primarily in a remote uh, setting. So I'll have probably just a few face-to-face meetings with students throughout the semester. Um, But I know that already, and so now starting to prepare for delivering my class in a different way. This now gives me time to prepare for that, Um, and that's not something I've done before either. So I'm kind of in the same boat with a lot of faculty. I not have to adjust my class to, to fit that. But I've been thinking about that for a while, knowing that that was a possibility and, and have some ideas, which actually I'm kind of excited about as a teacher, to do something different that I haven't done before. Yeah, and, and you kind of alluded to my next question in terms of uh, outreach and in terms of communication. I, I noticed that from looking at your website and looking at the YouTube and the videos that there seems to be a really robust system in terms of uh, feedback and messaging and outreach. How has that changed or has that enhanced uh, your ability or, or your need to outreach and communicate and make sure faculty understand what's going on and, and brainstorm and come up with solutions and give faculty and students and everybody, everyone's kind of just trying to navigate this uh 
unforeseen situation, how has that changed the way that you communicate with your students and with the faculty and, and your messaging, or, or has it just enhanced that, or were you already a world-class communicator and using YouTube and all these different tools to make sure that you get the message across to students? Well, you know, it's different. I would say one of the things from a communication standpoint that I was going to have to adjust to regardless, but this has maybe had me move more quickly in uh, figuring out how to do that is I'm now a systems president. I used to be a campus president. And those are two very different roles. And trying to figure out throughout all of this what message should come from the campus leaders and what messages should come from me. Um, and, and frankly, I'm not sure as a system, Southern Illinois really had that all worked out um, even before I arrived. And so it was finding a way that the kind of chancellors, myself, the dean of medicine um, does a lot of communication with his faculty as well. is very good at that. You know, what would I be delivering as messages and what would they be? And making sure those two things are coordinated. And mine tend to be more at the higher level. Here's our overall vision for what's going to happen for the SIU system, whereas they get into a little bit more details because those details may vary a little bit across campuses. Just as an example, we have a lot more residence hall capacity here at Carbondale than we do at Edwardsville. And so how we're going to you know, quarantine students who may test positive in the fall will be a little bit different on both campuses and how we may separate them out and put them in the rooms may be a little bit different. So some of the messaging will be different because of the campus's difference as far as facilities available and things like that. So one of the things we really had to figure out, and that wasn't clear, I think, early on, um, I will say, like, one of the things, there, the system, like, leaders were not really regularly meeting here. Um, we started with, we went right to daily meetings, um, every single day getting together and debriefing, and actually sometimes sharing ideas across the system, which I think was helpful, but also making sure I was informed and knew what they were doing and, and was comfortable with that. Um, and now we're kind of getting back to a more normal weekly meeting, but that again didn't happen here before either. So we're even the weekly is far more than we've done before with, uh, you know, some other periodic meetings, uh, thrown in there. So that's changed a little bit there. Uh, we did, you know, when planning for the fall, we had a system-wide uh, group as well as groups on each campus. And again, coordinating between those, making sure those on the campus group are also some of the people on the system group so we knew what was going on at that level. And I will say faculty were very much engaged in that process. In fact, at the Edwardsville campus, the co-chairs of the fall 20 um, academic planning group were two faculty members. So they really kind of led that process a lot. And, and I will say one of them was on my system task force. I relied on him a lot to kind of lay out what they were doing and, and answer questions about, you know, how they considered this and that. And so there was very heavy faculty involvement uh, throughout this process, which I thought was critically important if we were going to have any acceptance. And again, we don't expect anything we came up with to be 100% accepted by everybody. But I don't think anybody can claim that the faculty input was not included. Um, Carbondale also did a survey of students to make sure we heard the student voice as well. So we really did try as much as we could, I think, to reach out and get input and then try to communicate it. Um, I will say the biggest challenge with all of this is communicating where everything is as uncertain as it is. You know, every day I learn something new, something changes. Um, and we have to adjust. So I think everybody is looking for us to be 100% certain of this is what's going to happen and um, this will be the testing protocol and this will be that. And sometimes we just can't give that communication at this point because we're not sure yet um, because we're getting more and more information. So that's been the biggest challenge, I think, is people want more certainty than really is, frankly, possible right now. How do we, how do we address that? Because, you know, 
I have a 21 year old that's in college and obviously from a parent perspective, it's a little bit unnerving sometimes when the school's not exactly sure what they're going to do and you're trying to figure out and, and coordinate with your child. And even us that obviously that work in the field, we're still kind of navigating, how do we deal with that, that, that feeling of uncertainty and people wanting to have some reassurances and, and still there's a lot of tentative, you know, maybe we're going to do this, but we're not quite sure. And, and just all the logistics of it, is that going to happen right up until the fall term? begins do you think with most schools or is it just going to be depending on how many students or how many campuses like yeah and I think it's yeah and I I think it's a great question because I think that's just the challenge we're facing is is I can't be more certain any more than I could in the spring so like I said you know really it was within 48 hours I went from thinking we were going to be open to knowing we were going to be remote Um, it was that short of a time period um, and again, as we're starting to see now, if, if we think back two months ago, everybody told me we were going to be on a downward slope at this point, um, and the disease would almost be completely gone, and then it was going to come back again in October, and clearly that did not play out the way we thought it was going to. Um, we're getting more and more information on testing. University of Illinois is, has developed a saliva test that they're working on getting approval for, which would be cheaper, quicker, and much easier than the current tests. And if we had access to that, that's going to change all our testing protocols. And we'll follow, we'll go along with that, um, which I'm somewhat optimistic about. But I can't go out and say that's for sure yet because they're still going through that testing process to make sure it's an effective test. Um, so I think it's sometimes what we have tried to do is do a lot of town halls, a lot of open meetings with people on both the campuses. And sometimes being honest, of we don't know for sure yet. But here's some of the things we're thinking about at this point. Um, but, but, but again, we're following the best medical advice that we can get, Aaron, and that we won't do anything that goes against the advice of the healthcare professionals. And if anything, we're going to err on the side of being somewhat conservative as opposed to trying to push the envelope too far and, and put people's health and safety at risk. Jen, how, if you could talk real fast, um, and you don't have to provide number any numbers you're not comfortable sharing, but you know, the, a big part of this that's, that's uh, I think it's talked about, but it's not really talked about that much because I think there's, you know, lives involved here. But there's a, a tremendous financial strain on u- universities right now, particularly as they invest in testing procedures, distance campuses, um, and so on. Has that hit you guys or have you not felt the full effect of your financial output to, you know, to basically to allow a student back on campus comes with deep stipulation now, mm-hmm. um, you know, according to whoever you're following state of federal CDC or whatever, how has that hit your university system? Is Okay, wait a second. This is, this is going to cost us a lot of money when our students, but boy, um, it's, it's hit us hard on the, on the bottom line. Yeah, and, and and it will, and it continues to. So again, you're right. There's all kinds of different things we've had to do differently. You know, getting plexiglass shields to put in front of faculty as they're teaching. You know, investing in masks and hand sanitizers, and all kinds of changing of classrooms, and you know, all kinds of different things that we've had to do. So there's been a lot of cost, and there was frankly a lot of costs in the spring from the refunding of housing and dining and things like that. So I mean, the, the financial impact on the institution. Um, and the system has been pretty enormous. And that's one of the things I think sometimes when people say, you know, our main reason for wanting to open is because it's financially better. And it, it may be at the end of it, but it's not that there's no cost associated with opening. In fact, there will be greater costs 
Um, I think our main reason for opening really is more about trying to meet the needs of students and, and doing what's best for them and understanding that, you know, when you go remote like we did, um, that that worked fine for some students. Uh, my son's a just finished his sophomore year in college. He thrived in that environment for whatever reason. But I also have other family members who did not, you know, who who really struggled with that environment. So it's not a good fit for everybody. Even though I think online learning can be very effective, it doesn't work well for everybody and for every program. Um, and it tends to probably disadvantage those who come from disadvantaged backgrounds more. And so there's, to me, somewhat of a social justice uh, element to wanting to be as open as we possibly can be. Hey, everyone, this is Joe, just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com, where you can find and explore all of the content that we released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba, has started a new web series called EdUp Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at the EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. So talk to us a little bit about the social justice aspect. Oh, sorry, Joe, I'm just talking. No, no, I was going to say it. I was just going to say just before you you talk about that, the, the important point there that uh, Dan said that I think just uh, the the belief that schools are looking to bring students back on campus because somehow it's better for them financially when when it really um to some degree is not right because of the amount of of financial output uh, and preparation that's going to have to go into having those students on campus where hypothetically to an institution that has the same cost whether students are there or not online can be overall cheaper because you don't have the on-campus services that you have to provide that are that are at least in the variable category. So I think that's an important point, Dan. Thanks for bringing that up. And, and then I just wanted to make a point about that, Liz. Yeah, yeah, I know that's a great point. And, and I think it speaks to the idea that there's, a, there's so many different things to weigh up. And I, and I wanted to kind of key in on that a little bit as far as accessibility and equity and the fact that, you know, it sometimes is more difficult for students, you know, depending on where they're from, rural, or if they have um, issues in terms of maybe, uh, you know, I know that I've heard of, you know, even my own students where, you know, they, they maybe have one or two laptops in the home and then somebody is working from home, another child has to do K-12, another child is home from college, and it's just, it, it's hard to navigate. So there's a lot of different things to think about as far as serving the students' needs better. 30% of the students, um, if I'm not mistaken, are coming from minority backgrounds. Um, you've been very um, vocal in terms of the messaging about addressing the equity and uh, social justice and uh, supporting your students, the panels, and and I, I was really impressed by a lot of the messaging that I saw there in terms of reaching out and providing that support international students and, and students that at this point may feel not supported. Talk to us a little bit, talk through what's been going on in the country and how you've made at UN the, the leaders on your campuses, how you've made that a priority to ensure that students do feel supported and that you uh, are giving them the best um, support system that they need or 
want to yeah. do with a school. Yeah, and I think um, you know one of the things that, and this has been something I've tried to work on in every leadership role I had. I always say it's one of the reasons I wanted to be in leadership roles is I thought we could do a better job um, in meeting the needs of all of our students and being more equitable. Um, and everything that was happening nationally, this seemed to me to be the opportunity to do something more significant than I've been able to do at past places. And and one of the things that we're really focused on, um, really a lot of things, but the biggest thing is really looking at every single thing that we do and looking for examples of systemic racism and, and you know, that we may not automatically see, but have a differential impact on people based on race or gender or socioeconomic status or, or whatever, um, and changing some of those processes and, and decisions maybe that we're making. And again, that was one of the things that weighed on me. I, I will tell you, I had some people, several people tell me that I was an idiot for letting students stay in the dorms, that this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Yeah. And this was awful. Um, and A, we didn't have any outbreak in either of our residence halls and or any of our residence halls on either campus. So we actually didn't have the massive outbreak they very thought. Again, it was a much smaller number than we'll have in the fall, but we didn't, that did, A, didn't happen. But B, it was coming from people who I don't think understood that for some of our students, if they go home, they would not have internet access in their home. And some of them are in rural settings and some of them are in other settings, but they don't have that. They don't have a safe place to go to. If they leave us, they have food insecurities. Um, at least if they were here, they would get fed at the dining hall and have the opportunity to do that. That, there were, that they needed to be on campus for one reason or another. And, and even our international students is a good example that you know, kicking them out of the residence halls would have been an awful thing at that moment. So for me, keeping the residence halls open was an important part, um, again, of our social justice mission. And, and I think that's an example as we go forward of when we look at the way we do things, our policies, our procedures, our processes, are they truly fair? Are we considering how this may impact people who are differently, different than me? And I think, again, a lot of people, when they said, you know, send the students home, are imagining them to all going home to homes like theirs that has good internet access, that the families are affluent enough to make sure that they're fed, that they've got all the resources that they need and all the support that they need. But that's not the reality for every one of our students. And we have to recognize that fact um, and make a different decision based on that. And so that's one of the things we really want to tackle. But again, some of it is going back and looking at the way we do things. One of the things I've brought up um, that I think is a big thing is, while a lot of schools, including Carbondale, have gone test optional, we still rely heavily on test scores to make decisions about scholarships. Um, I found when I was at Winthrop, I looked at our data at one point, and the group that got the most merit scholarships at Winthrop were upper-class white males. So when we're giving out our scholarships, we're over-giving them to people who come from more advantaged backgrounds, people who are white. Um, but the SAT actually was a horrible predictor of success in college. So we're using something we know is not a good predictor to give money to people who need it, need it less. So there's something seriously wrong in my mind with how we do that. So that's one of the things we're looking at right now. Talked with both chancellors actually just this week about how do we do our scholarship decisions? And should we be changing that in a way that is more equitable? Let me ask you something, because you hit on something that definitely, and Joe will know, <laughs> I can go on about this forever. Wait for it. Yeah, well, you know what? It's frustrating because I think for someone that I went to University of Florida on a full ride minority scholarship, mm -hmm. it it is definitely something that for some reason in higher education, I think in the 90s, there was a big push. There was a lot of um, affirmative action. And for some reason, we saw a lot of rollback. We saw a lot of people say, hey, that's reverse, you know, that's discriminatory against 
other um, demographics and, and you shouldn't do that. But then we see that we have some of the most disadvantaged students and students that are first gen or students that are coming from minority background. My SAT score sucked. I barely got a thousand. And I graduated with my bachelor's degree, went on to get my master's degree. I've worked in higher education for 20 years. So you're absolutely right. Just because someone can't get a particular test score does not indicate that that person will not be successful and not be able to thrive in an educational environment. So talk to us a little bit about you know, some of the things that you're, I, I saw some really interesting things about your panel discussions, your not one and done, some of your task forces, your social media campaigns. How can we get, talk to us a little bit about those elements because I really want to hear about some of those initiatives and I, I want other schools that maybe are not as far along or maybe not as um, forward thinking to maybe get some ideas and maybe you can provide some, some context and some advice as to how you were able to come up with some of those um, initiatives. And why is it that higher education has been, I want to say, tone deaf, you know, in the, in the past, like, 20 years or so since I went to college, I just feel as though there really hasn't been as much of the attention and not just attention, but the actual forethought and solid concrete initiatives to recruit minority students retain minority students, graduate minority students, and then also faculty administration and, and all of the support mechanisms, the mentoring. When we think about social justice in this country and everything that's going on, and people are like, hey, you know, why is everyone so riled up about this? I mean, education, we talk about this on the show, is one of the great, um, you know, equalizers, and if students don't have access to it, if they can't get that scholarship, they might not understand about financial aid because the parents didn't go to college, and then it's like, hey, you know what? I'll just go get a job. You know, maybe college is just not for me. While someone that doesn't need it and family has the means, maybe is taking advantage, like you said. And, and why aren't schools looking at those those um, elements and, and making the adjustments accordingly? Yeah, and I, I think again with everything, there's probably a different reason. So I think you know, going back to what I was talking about with the SAT scores, uh, keep in mind our rankings are largely based on SAT scores. Um, and so the U.S. News and World Report rankings, I think, drive a lot of what we do from a scholarship perspective. And so we don't do the analysis I did at Winthrop. I think in most places and even think about how much of, I mean, what I found was about 25% of the success of our students was based on their high school grades, um, about 1% based on the SAT score. So why are we basing our scholarships primarily on the 1% and not on the 25%? Um, and again, I think it's most places are simply not looking at their information, looking at their data and saying, what really is the best predictor of college success? And I would, you know, not all of them may be like it was for me at Winthrop, but it probably is somewhat similar, but they're not asking that question. They're just following along with the way we've always done things. Um, and I think we sometimes in higher education have this thought, perhaps because we're, we're labeled by a lot of people as being overly liberal, that we're already doing all of the right things. Um, and that our processes and procedures don't need to be examined. You know, we're, we're, we're doing the right things. We're, we're committed to social justice. But when you look at the way we do things, it, that often falls apart. You know, and, and, and I can give lots of examples of what I've seen with, for example, faculty uh, promotion decisions. You know, a lot of places will say, well, we want to look at things like impact factors. Well, you know, a lot of African-American scholars are publishing in new journals and, cutting, and kind of doing new cutting-edge stuff. But it's not in those journals with the high impact factors because that's not the audience that they're going after. And it's not the places that publish that type of research that they do. But the research they do is of high quality. So 
your overemphasis for perhaps on impact factors is having a detrimental effect on your African-American faculty. You're not seeing it that way. You're simply saying impact factors is a good way to measure the quality of a journal, which at first makes sense. But then when you start to kind of break that down, you realize that it doesn't always make sense and you need to be more flexible and adapt your, again, your processes and procedures in some ways that, again, I think most universities just simply haven't examined. Um, and there, there's also, I think, always this, you know, well, I got through it. It was, it's a good system. <laughs> it, it promoted right. me. Yeah, it, it hired me. So even though I think our search processes sometimes, and I've even seen examples of things in the short time I've been here, that's like, we need to change that. That is creating some of these problems for us and trying to hire uh, diverse candidates in the higher level positions. So there's a lot of things I think we can do better in higher education, um, but we need to kind of look inward. And I think often as in higher education, we make the mistake of always looking outward and being critical of everybody else and what they're doing and not taking a deep dive into our own ways of doing things. Um, and that's really what I want us to do at SIU and, and hopefully take on a kind of a leadership role if we do this well, then we can be the place that other people look at as an example. And that, that to me is particularly appealing. Absolutely. What about those task forces? Do you think if you have something tangible where you're attacking key metrics and, and you want to have a particular outcome, do you think that makes you more accountable when you have, instead of just saying, okay, we're going to look at diversity. If yeah. you have a task force that is going to attack this particular issue, recruiting students, or a task force for faculty in, in, increasing black faculty by whatever your metrics are, mm -hmm. do you think that makes you a little bit more efficient? I, I think it's important to um, measure. You know, when we don't yeah. measure things, they end up not being important. Um, and I think it's important to measure. In fact, we had a meeting of one of our system-wide task force subcommittees on Monday that I was part of that we looked at benchmarks and metrics, and we have about a page and a half of single space, <laughs> things that we want to be constantly assessing ourselves and holding ourselves accountable to kind of at all levels of the institution. And I think that makes an enormous difference. I've been places where those things weren't looked at at all. And when they're not looked at, then people don't tend to pay attention to them. When they are looked at, even when I was at Kent State as a dean, every year I got a diversity scorecard that I had to write a response to every year. And this is what I did. And that became part of my evaluation as a dean. Um, that makes it a different thing, I think, than when it's just simply no one's really counting, no one's paying attention. Um, and some of it's numbers, but it's also, you know, what's the climate on campus like? Can we show actual improvement in how people feel, you know, people feel more welcome, they feel more included, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so we have, again, a whole very long list of different things that we want to start assessing. And you hit the nail on the head, because if you improve your numbers, both your metrics go up and you improve increased students, um, minority students by a certain percentage of your school that has, mm -hmm. maybe you're lacking in that area of faculty or leadership. But if the climate isn't a good climate, then they're not going to stay. So, I mean, it's definitely a combination. So I'm glad you hit on that. And, and I love the idea of the task forces because it, it even sounds like something that's going to, like, a task force. <laughs> like, not just something that you're, you're taking it seriously and, and, and you're talking about measuring and making sure that you have outcomes and that you're held accountable. So thank you for addressing that. Yeah, and I will say that was one of the examples early in my career. I was in an institution where they tried that. They um, 
the state had actually come down on them, the lack of diversity in faculty. So they went out and just hired a bunch of people, but brought them in in such a clumsy way um, that most of them ended up leaving. They were not treated well. It was it ended up being a disaster. And I learned a lot, even though that happened before I got there. Just hearing the stories about that taught me a lot about the bringing people into an environment where they're supported and they can be successful. Um, that could have been an enormously successful initiative. It ended up being, frankly, a failure. And then what that ends up doing, unfortunately, when I, by the time I got there, was, well, we tried hiring for diversity and it didn't work. And that's where things start to fall down and why, again, schools stop making progress is because everybody feels like, well, we tried it didn't, and it didn't work. And my response is always, you tried something that didn't work. That doesn't mean that nothing will work. Um, and the way you, what you tried, uh, clearly I could have told you probably wasn't going to work. And so I think it's kind of getting away from that. Well, we tried something before that wasn't successful. Well, let's try something different. Let's figure out why that wasn't successful and do something that can work. Gotcha. Thank you for addressing that. Yeah, well, and and uh, this has really been a, a great uh, a great um, episode. And Liz, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you to take it home um, because this is really your area of expertise in, in particular. But you know, take us home. And and uh, Dan, thanks for the great conversation. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely, we we definitely appreciate your time, and I could just talk to you all day about this because in terms of the diversity and awareness and. Um, initiatives and inclusiveness and, and all of the sensitivity around those issues with everything that's going on in our country today. It's refreshing to see, especially in the state university system, um, that's where I uh, attended undergrad. And, and sometimes it seems like that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, just making sure that students' needs are met when they're in an environment that's not similar to their at-home background and, and making sure that you're thinking and being uh, cognitive, cognizant of all those different um, elements and, and pieces that make this puzzle fit together. So thank you for addressing some of those, um, some of the advice that maybe you can share, you know, that, that others can model and, and take away from. So we want to ask you a couple last questions, not trick questions, but questions that we ask our guests to just um, maybe share some last parting words. Um, first, just making sure that there's nothing we've forgotten to ask you that you might want to uh, talk about in terms of SIU and anything that you want to elaborate on. And then the other question would be just what you think the future of education looks like. Yeah, so I'd say one thing about the SIU, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me here um, when this all the crisis started, there was lots of discussions that um, we would all see massive drops in enrollment, and actually we're seeing for freshman class, housing, everything is actually up for us, um, which is interesting, and I don't think it's what a lot of people predicted. I don't think we're alone in that, but I do think that that's perhaps one of the things that was was somewhat unexpected, which, again, I think leads me back to why having, even if it's a different on-campus experience, some on-campus experience seems to be really critically important to the students and something we need to continue to pursue. As far as the the future of higher education, you know, I think it's going to continue to evolve in the way that um, I, I kind of talked about with those three things where we're doing some things online, some face-to-face, -face, and some hybrid. I think that model will be our model for a long time. I don't think we're moving entirely to a remote education model because, again, I don't think that works for every program and it doesn't work for every student. Um, but I think having more diversity and opportunities, I also think – I, the, one of the only good things that has come from the coronavirus for higher education 
is we do now have more faculty who feel comfortable, I think, using technology. And so even if they're teaching face-to-face, this whole concept of face-to-face is just a lecture, and that's all it is, I think will change pretty dramatically over the next several years. I think they have found lots of opportunities to enhance what they do educationally uh, from the technologies available that may, they may not have explored otherwise. Um, and so maybe that's the one Good positive point. out of a really, really negative situation, but that's the one positive. So I think we it has pushed us to maybe innovate more um, on a faculty-by-faculty basis than I think would have happened otherwise, which I think um, over the long term will be a positive thing for higher ed. Awesome. So there you have it. We thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing all of your knowledge and, and all of your experience and everything you've been through over the past few months. And it's very informative for those that are going through some of those same uh, experiences as leaders. And hopefully that will give them a great model to follow because you're, you're doing a lot of great stuff there, and especially with the diversity and awareness of just some of the the issues that are really uh, important and and really need to be examined and and really need to be uh, uh, championed for students that maybe don't have a voice and uh, being able to provide that for them. I'm I'm really, uh, really excited that that's something you were able to talk about and, and really share. So thank you, Dr. Daniel Mahoney, president of Southern Illinois University System, and we appreciate you joining us and and taking the time to spend with us today. Thank you. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about higher education. uh, I think there's uh, a lot of exciting things going on, and I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.